Welcome to the Class of 1987 podcast. I'm your host, Tim Harkness. On this podcast, we will be speaking with members of the Yale College Class of 1987 about their lives, where they've been, where they are now, and where they are going. We plan to cover a wide range of topics and have people who represent the full range of our class's experience. The class of 1987 is the best class that Yale College has ever had, and we're here to celebrate that. So sit back and listen to what your classmates have to say. Welcome to the next edition of the Y87 podcast. With me today is our classmate, Carrie Baker. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Tim. How are you? I am good. I am good. Thanks so much for uh, joining. We're recording this as a uh, nor'easter is coming up the coast. So I hope you stay safe and warm. So what are you up to these days? Where are you and and what do you do? So I live in Northampton, Massachusetts, and I teach at Smith College. I married a Yale classmate, Harvey Hill, baby remember. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just had our, this year we're having our 30th wedding anniversary, which is really hard to believe. And uh, congratulations. Yeah. Thanks so much. We have two sons who are 22 and 25 and they live in Boston. And I'm um, a runner and a swimmer and I love whitewater kayaking and downhill skiing. Um, When I hit 50, I decided I needed to overcome some of my lifetime fears and downhill skiing was at the top of the list. So that's how I've been occupying myself the last few years. That sounds great. That sounds great. Uh, Tell me, what kind of work do you do at Smith? So I'm in the program for the study of women and gender, what in our day used to be called women's studies. And I'm also um, affiliated with American studies, public policy, and the archives concentration. And we have a journalist, a new journalism concentration as well. So I teach and research on gender law and policy, women's legal rights, feminist social movements in the U.S. And I've written three books one on sexual harassment and how that issue, that term sexual harassment was coined in 1975 for a speak out in Ithaca, New York. And basically it was a group of feminists up at Cornell who had had experiences of sexual coercion in the workplace, but it didn't have a name and it wasn't, it was just kind of like the background noise women had to deal with. So they wanted a poster to have an event and they were like, what should we put on the poster? And they sort of brainstormed and came up with the term sexual harassment. And that was kind of the beginning of a movement that over 15 years turned, you know, kind of what many women experienced in the workplace into a federal civil rights violation. And so my book kind of traces that work. Um, I interviewed activists. I did archival research. I did legal research, you know, looked at legislative hearings and court cases. And so it was just really a fun book to write. And most of my research does that kind of thing. I like to look at social change and the ways that activists kind of take what's taken for granted around them and problematize it and organize around it and make social change, which is really, really fun. Well, you you also wrote a book about sex trafficking that 
touches on some of the same basic themes. And what I'm talking about, though, is how naming something, the way it's named, will change how something's perceived. And what you call someone or something will change and how that rhetorical shift is important. Like, How did you get into that? Like, how did you, like, no, seriously, it's like, because the naming, like, going from, like, a child prostitute to a sex worker to a victim of trafficking, like, that's been an evolution during our adulthood, that terminology. But, like, what you call someone changes the way you think about whether they're a victim or a perpetrator, whether they're good or bad. So, like, how did you get into that rhetorical shift? Yeah. Like, like, uh, how did you think about that? I mean, this is the work that social movements do. They take sort of common sense stories that circulate through culture and they challenge them. They, they question them and they try to reframe them and tell new stories. So in the case of my second book, which is called Fighting the U.S. Youth Sex Trade, um, I talk about how in the 70s, people talked about child prostitutes. In the 90s, they talked about commercial sexual exploitation of children. And in the Currently, they talk about child sex trafficking, and it really completely reframes what's happening, who's responsible, who's being victimized, what we should do about it. And I find that process of questioning norms and questioning our cultural stories and coming up with new stories and trying to make social change. I mean, that's what Black Lives Matter was about. It, you know, so many social movements, gay marriage, right? So many social movements are about challenging stigmatization and kind of derogatory ideas about certain people and reframing um, those ideas, challenging them and then creating social change. And I, I find it so fascinating to talk to people in social movements that are doing that work. And, you know, it's, it's like creating new category, conceptual categories that, that then reframes everything that you see in the world and gives you a new perspective on things. I think that's really the core of social change and what I focus on in my work. I mean, right now I'm doing a lot of writing around um, reproductive rights and abortion. And an example is abortion, you know, because of stigmatization, it's sort of mystified and framed to be traumatic and difficult and immoral. And what reproductive rights movements are doing is trying to reframe it in multiple ways. And I just find that process really fascinating. So, you know, you have an interesting intellectual journey or philosophy major as an undergrad, then you go to law school, and then you switch to go to a PhD. So, like, how did you take that intellectual path? Yeah. Or did you, like, did you go to law school thinking, oh, I don't want to become a practicing lawyer. I want to become an academic. Like, what were you thinking? How did that happen? So, um, you mentioned philosophy major at Yale. I actually started as a physics major at Yale, but I encountered a fair amount of hostility to my presence as a woman in the physics department. So I left that major and ended up in philosophy. And I think that the philosophy degree, again, thinking about these concepts and norms and challenging norms, I think that I learned to read um, closely to pay attention, to analyze. And in my senior year at Yale, I ended up just by chance in Michaela Di Leonardo's Introduction to Women's Studies class, which was an absolutely mind-blowing experience for me. That class gave me concepts and 
language for things I'd always felt, but never had been able to articulate and fully understand. I found a history. Like, like what? Like what ideas? What vocabulary did you learn there? Well, an example is just sexism. You know, quite frankly, I grew up in a really conservative community, not far from where you live now in Weston, Connecticut. And, you know, I just remember growing up always banging my head against the wall and feeling like a stranger in a strange land and not understanding why things didn't work for me. And I think it was because it was a really conservative, traditional, you know, sexist, racist community that, um, you know, I just saw social injustices. I couldn't have articulated as that, but I saw things that I didn't like a lot, but I really didn't have a framework for understanding why it bothered me. And, you know, when I took that class, it really just all sorts of, you know, in feminism, we talk about the clicks, you know, all kinds of clicks happened for me. And I'm like, oh, now I understand why I pushed against, you know, this or that that happened to me growing up. And, you know, after I finished college, I continued to read in this field and I got really involved with abortion rights activism because shortly after we graduated from college, the Supreme Court decided an abortion case called Webster versus Reproductive Health Services which involved a Missouri law that banned public hospitals from offering or counseling abortion. And I went to my first march in Washington, D.C. and was absolutely hooked. I was fascinated and um, fascinated both in thinking about what's the law and how to understand it, but also social movements and how social movements change things. And after that, I moved to Atlanta with Harvey. He was starting a PhD program in religion at Emory. And just by chance, Emory was starting the country's very first PhD program in women's studies. And I applied and entered in the very first class. So this was 1990. And I was, so I was in a class of four and, you know, this didn't exist. There were no PhDs in women's studies. And I was really interested in the law. So I decided to do both degrees. I combined the JD and the PhD because I wanted to understand more like when the Supreme Court made a decision, what's going on? And um, But then I liked having the, the graduate work to understand more deeply, you know, history and sociology and political science. It was this wonderful, wide open, interdisciplinary PhD program. And so you know, I was in those two programs. It took me about 10 years to finish because along the way I clerked for a federal judge in Atlanta for two years and I had two children. And I was also editor of the law journal when I was at Emory Law. And, you know, I did a lot along the way. I've never gone in a straight line between two places, but that's kind of how I ended up in. And when I started that program, I wasn't sure if I was going to become a, like, I always said I wanted to start a, like, education and legal defense fund for women's rights in Atlanta with a Southeast focus. Um, that uh -huh. still doesn't exist and somebody needs to start that. But I ended up in academia because I love the intellectual journey. I love the students, the teaching, the research and the freedom. You know, you really, in, as an academic, you control your time, you control what you research, what you teach, you get constant contact with young people. I really think it keeps you young because you're just constantly being challenged to like think about things in a fresh new way and like upend your assumptions, which is what right. I really enjoy intellectually. So how do you choose what you're going to focus on? 
I mean, you've got, you know, when you deal with uh, women's issues, gender issues, there's so much, so many different things you could focus on. How do you choose the ones that are going to be the things you spend your time on? You know, I tell my students, and I know this is really cliche, but I tell them to follow their passion. I know that sounds really cliche, but, you know, you just listen to what intrigues you and then go there and follow that. And everything I've done has, has done that. So for instance, my first book on sexual harassment, I started law school in 1991. I don't know if you remember the fall of 1991, but it was the Anita, Anita Hill, yeah. Thomas hearings. And, you know, all of us budding law students were just salivating, right? We were just like, oh my gosh, you know, this was so exciting. And we'd sit in the lobby called the bus station and watch these hearings on C-SPAN, like 24-7 and talk, 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 talk. And so my my law journal comment was on sexual harassment. And then that became my dissertation. And then that became my first book. And, you know, it's continuing to be um, an area of interest for me. And then the, the trafficking kind of grew out of that. I mean, sexual harassment is very much at the intersection of gender, sexuality, economics, violence, and so is sex trafficking. And so they kind of grew out, you know, it was just really interesting to think about those connections and think about how, you know, these experiences impact not just your physical and mental health, but your economic health and your ability to thrive in the world. And now I, one of my real focuses is reproductive rights. And it's the same thing. I mean, if you coerce somebody to you know, carry an unwanted pregnancy, you're not only harming their health, but you're harming their, um, you know, their economic situation and their, you know, their dignity and their ability to thrive in the world. It's really, in my mind, you know, forcing someone to carry a pregnancy against their will is a form of violence against women, just like sexual harassment or assault or trafficking. And so I, I see all of my areas of focus as integrally connected, but kind of growing out words in different ways over the course of my career. So from your perspective, has feminism and the people who study, like the, the academic study of the women's issues you've just talked about, has that changed since you were a student at Yale? You know, and if so, how? Yeah, I think it has changed. So remember when we were at Yale, the field of women's studies is quite new. The first courses were taught at San Diego State University in 1969. You know, when we were at Yale, they were, you know, it was a very new field and it was first developing. Now, you know, there's 22 PhD programs and over 700 programs, undergraduate programs across the country. It's, it's hugely developed. It's more institutionalized. It has now its own canon. But at the time, you know, I started my PhD program, it was kind of the Wild West, which actually I totally love. I liked that because it just gave me freedom to pursue what I wanted. There was no canon, so I could, you know, again, follow what interested me. But, um, you know, the field is, has a much broader analysis. It, it focuses not just on women and women's history, but on gender, including masculinity, as well as sexuality and queer theory. You know, it focuses on the intersections of race, class, sexuality, nationality, other aspects of women's lives around the world. It's very global now. Um, I think it was much more just sort of focused on the U.S. back then. And, mm -hmm. you know, we, it's very focused not just on individual experiences, but on societal structures and ideologies that shape people's lives. I mean, gender isn't just an attribute 
of an individual person. It's embedded in institutions, in our language, in the media. And so, you know, we look at all of these things and think about the ways in which things like gender and race are you know, sort of in ways that are often invisible, embedded in these institutions and influence people in really complex ways. So it's a fascinating field. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying the conversation. Please remember that this podcast is being brought to you by the 35th reunion of the greatest class Yale College has ever known, the great class of 1987. Our reunion will be in New Haven, Connecticut, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, in Pearson College. We hope to see you there. Now, back to the conversation. Yeah, it sounds like it. So I want to go back to something you said earlier. Do you think that the feelings of being unwelcome in the physics department and then getting an explanation or getting a vocabulary to think about what that experience was like later in your college career, did those two things together shape your path? So I definitely think my experiences at Yale shaped my path. You know, one thing that that I only realized later is that when I entered Yale, when we entered Yale in 1983, it had only been co-ed for about a decade, right? I mean, women started there as transfer students in 69. They first graduated in like 73 and we arrived in 83. And, you know, I, of course, you know, was oblivious to that. My dad had gone to Yale and and I knew that like, you know, it was single sex when he was there and it was co-ed when I got there. But like, I wasn't thinking about the ways in which that history of being an all-male institution was embedded in the college. And I wasn't aware of the hostility that many men, including many faculty members, still felt about co-education and alums as well. You know, I was yeah. just because for them it was new. I mean, yeah. it was like, yeah, it was totally new. And I just think the inst- you know it takes years for an institution to make that kind of transition. And you know, in addition to not feeling welcome in the physics department, I also experienced sexual harassment at Yale. I was really interested in photography, and I took a course with Thomas Roma in the art department, and he pressured me to go out with him and date him. And I ended up dropping my interest in photography, and I went away from that to come back to it years later. But I I had also experienced sexual harassment in high school as well. And I think that informed my, again, my, my unhappiness with things, but I didn't have, I didn't understand what was going on. I was just like, oh, well, he's interested in me. I feel really uncomfortable. I'm going to go away. I didn't sort of think about the fact that this jerk is depriving me of an educational opportunity. And, and like, you know, I'm, pay a lot of money to be here. And, you know, and he's treating me like this rather than focusing on me as a student and as a artist, he's treating me as a sexual object to be cliche. Just because it's a cliche doesn't mean it's not true. So it's like, yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's hugely impactful part of your life. It was totally impactful. And again, it never came together until years later. And actually, this is just a little side note. So first of all, I write for Ms. Magazine. I've been a writer there for about a decade, and I'm a contributing editor now. And so when Me Too happened in 2017, I had never reported Tom Roma to Yale. And it turns out that he went on to Columbia and became the head of their photography program and continued the behavior for years. And when Me Too happened, he was Me Tooed. And he was called out at Columbia. He eventually resigned. And there was a New York Times article about him. But 
I decided that it was time for me to finally report Tom Roma. And I talked to the, I'm in that New York Times article, but I'm also, um, you know, I reported it to Yale finally. And I wrote a piece for Ms. Magazine about it as well. And, you know, I did that because I was teaching about Me Too to my students. And I mentioned this and one of my students raised their hand and said, did you report him? And, you know, I had to explain to them in 1985 or whatever, when it happened, you know, sexual harassment wasn't even clearly illegal at that point, And nobody really knew what it was. It was still very kind of, you know, and I knew this history because I wrote the book on it. And um, and so it was just really, um, I think, cathartic in a way to finally report him and and then to see him have to step down from Columbia you know, it, it kind of, in a way, was coming full circle back to those early experiences at Yale, which definitely, just to answer your original question, set me on my trajectory. Got it. So you've talked about your students a couple of times, and I know you have been received a few awards for your teaching. It Teaching seems to be very, very important to you. How do you see your role as a teacher in a college, and has your view of your role as a teacher changed, evolved, become deeper? Like, can you just talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I th- my students, I love my students, especially my Smith students. I've taught at like several institutions, including a couple in Georgia and Emory and various places, but. You know, I always say that Smith College is like the nirvana of women's studies because, first of all, it's well-supported and respected. Second of all, we have brilliant students who are are, um, ambitious and feminist and eager to learn, hungry to learn. And, you know, to me, to be... It's just such an honor and a privilege to be able to each semester meet a new group of these brilliant young people who are full of energy and fire and like ready to take on the world and eager to learn and angry and, you know, ecstatic and all the, like, think back in college about how we all were. I mean, it's just a wonderful time. So, you know, for me, I think that the key thing to teaching well is to meet your students where they are. And to meet your students where they are, you have to know them. You have to think about who they are. You have to spend the time it takes to get to know them at the outset. So for instance, what I do, and this is really grueling at the beginning of the semester, which is where I am right now, is that I meet my students in small groups and spend some time with them and just like ask them about their lives and find about their interests and, you know, what are the burning questions they have? And like this semester, I have a class with 60 students. So it's it's a huge time. And then another with another 40. So it's a huge time investment, but it is well worth the effort at multiple levels because I see my students, I see when I first meet them, it's the beginning of a potentially lifelong relationship. I mean, I stay in touch with my students and I connect my current students with my former students. I'm a little bit of a connector. You know, I love to like make hip connections between people and like, you know, the idea of like, I have a student interested in law and I know this really cool lawyer who's doing, you know, a similar kind of law as what they are doing. I just love that. 
And so, you know, and I, and I also try to make what I'm teaching relevant to their lives and to the current world. And that's where my public writing comes in. I share my public writing with them. I, I'm very up on everything, the latest in, you know, women's rights, because I'm interviewing activists and lawyers. I mean, just day before yesterday, I was interviewing Carolyn Maloney and Jackie Spear and, you know, all these people. And I, you know, sometimes play clips of interviews with my students or just share what I'm doing. And they love that because it feels real. It's not like irrelevant academic stuff. It's like, wow, what happened yesterday at the Supreme Court? And what does it mean? So they right, respond well right. to that. That sounds very energizing. I can just hear in your voice and I can get to see your face yeah. and like how energized you are talking about your students. Yeah. So let me switch gears a little bit. You mentioned your photography and you have your own website and I'll make sure that people can get a link to the website in the description of the podcast. And on it, you, you, you feature some of your photography, which I was really taken with. I'm an amateur photographer, but you are clearly more skilled than I. So, but. <laughs> I don't know. There's so much to talk about with your photography. First of all, um, when did you get back to it? Because you left it, but then you came back to it. When did you come back to it? So actually, my interest in photography started before I got to Yale. Mm -hmm. No, it was actually when I was at Yale. When I was in my first year, my dad had a business trip to Togo, Africa, and he took me with him. And the reason that that being in somewhere so absolutely different made everything so more visible. Like I wasn't used to seeing what I was seeing. So everything was like larger than life and really vivid. And I remember I had just like a little Instamatic, but I started getting drawn to, you know, taking photos and the light and the shape and the texture and everything was so different. And that's what made me interested in taking photography courses when I was at Yale. But I didn't do it for many years. And then um, in the early 2000s, you know, I was an academic and I was at a really stressful time of my life because I was um, teaching full time. I was had two toddlers. My mother had had a stroke and I was entirely responsible for her. She was disabled. And I was just in a really, really challenging time of my life. And I began to photograph again. I found that it took me out of my head. It took me out of not only my um, sort of academic head, you know, the kind of words and thinking and analysis head, but it took me out of my sort of emotional head as well. And it took me into my heart. It took me into my you know, into the things I was seeing. And I'm a very intuitive photographer. I really haven't had much training other than that. You know, I think I took two courses with Tom Roma, but I, I basically just follow, you know, what I'm drawn to. And I do, I tend to do, especially later, much more close macro shots where I look for shape and texture and color. And it's like, almost looks, you know, like a Rorschach test or something. But I find that there's just so much in there. And when I, I've done a number of shows and I actually, I did used to do the art show circuit and sell my work. And I, I loved seeing, hearing what people saw in the work, you know, like they would see a stag or, you know, a two people embracing and, you know, I hadn't seen that. And so it was just a really, I think, fascinating way to kind of engage with people at a meta level, right? And it both as an aesthetic experience, but also, you know, just getting out in nature 
also I love, which I lived at the time in Georgia and the, and I had, I was living in a log cabin out on a sort of big field and there were these amazing sunsets and, um, you know, so I could just watch all of that. And whenever the moment would hit, I'd run out the door and start taking photographs. So how do you, how do you choose your subjects? I mean, is it completely intuitive or do you say, except for the, the sunsets, like one of them, you have this really cool shot of a snail and then others, you have the, um, the dew on a flower. And then there's some, there sort of these ethereal, um, shots on your website, uh, with a, I don't know if it's a walkway or a driveway or a small road with fog. And it's just like, you say, Oh my goodness, this is my day. Or you're just walking by and say, it catches your eye. How does that process work for you? So I, I mentioned earlier that I'm a runner and now what I do is I take my, my smartphone and I run and I just, pay attention to the environment. I run on trails. I run in the woods. I run, you know, across Smith campus and I just look, I'm just there. I'm, I'm, I'm paying attention to things and just something will catch my eye. And often I won't know why I'm attracted to it. And then I just zero in like that snail picture. I was just on a hike with my family actually. And that one I, I was using a regular, you know, 35 millimeter camera. And sometimes I'll do that as well. But, um, you know, usually it's just, I'm just observing and something is like interesting to me for some reason, you know, I mean, the snail is just, I mean, snails are interesting, but like, you know, it might be the fog rising up off of, you know, among the trees, or it might be, you know, I'm running first thing in the morning and the dew on the flowers, you know, during the pandemic, when all my students got sent home, I started running every morning and taking photographs of the flowers on Smith campus to make them feel more connected because we were, you know, having classes remote. And so I would share these flowers with them. And then that became like an obsession for me for a long time. I have a Facebook page of all my flowers during, it's like my pandemic flowers. And I just, I went down the rabbit hole of and discovered this whole world of, you know, Smith's an arboretum and it has some amazing gardens, but I'd never closely paid attention. And once I started closely paying attention, it was like this whole amazing, beautiful world. And so I, I guess I, it's almost like my, my academic analysis. If you go in really closely to almost anything, it's really fascinating and you can see so much more. And that's what I'm trying to do with my photography. That's great. So we've gotten to the part of our podcast that I call the lightning round. So I'm going to ask you some quick question and answers, and sometimes it actually turns into more of a discussion, but whatever, we uh, don't, don't get too uh, worked up about things. So I'm going to ask you some direct questions and see if we can get some answers. So is there a book you think that our class should read right now? So... I, you know, you gave me this question. It's such a hard thing to say, but what I'm going to say, and this is my own interest, it may not be other interests people, of people, but I think that folks should read a book by Catherine Colbert and Julie Kay called Controlling Women. Uh, Colbert and Kay are the founders of the Center for Reproductive Rights, and they are the folks that have litigated many abortion rights cases over the last several decades. And this book, I think, is really interesting because they tell their own story, but they also analyze what the heck is all this about abortion about? I mean, it's really, it's not about babies. It's about much larger questions. I think that's one reason why it's really interesting to me. You know, it's about gender. It's about women's roles. It's about race. It's about, you know, immigration. It's about social change. It's about religion. And I, I think that 
the book is really interesting because they make the argument that at the end of the day, you know, this sort of frenzy in this country around reproductive rights and restricting reproductive rights is really about controlling women. And if that's a topic that at all interests you, I encourage you to read that book because it certainly is a timely issue. I think it's very likely the Supreme Court will eliminate Roe versus Wade. Unfortunately, our classmate Brett Kavanaugh is going to be part of that. And that makes me really, really sad. And uh, I think we need to understand what's going on and we need to figure out what we're going to do about it. All right. So a, a couple less serious questions. Well, one is serious. What do you think the most important quality of being a good teacher is? Like what I said earlier, meeting your students where they're at, which means getting to know them, and also offering interactive, engaged learning experiences. My forthcoming book is called Public Feminisms from Academy to Community, which is about the ways that it's an anthology of scholars across the country and the world talking about the ways in which they take their students and go out into the community and engage in the in sort of projects, whether it's social activism or business or different kinds of things. And I think that, you know, again, having those kind of real world, interactive, engaged learning experiences is the best way to be an effective teacher. So next question, should we bring back the fashion of the 1980s? Should we bring back the fashion of the 1980s? So this is a really easy question. I think it's the easiest question you've asked me so far. Didn't like it then, don't like it now. Absolutely not. <laughs> Just know you, you're not wearing like leg warmers or shoulder pads right now. So um, The only thing I, I liked it. was fingerless gloves. I still use those up here in chilly New England. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, that's almost Dickensian, so I don't know if the <laughs> 1980s can really claim those. Yeah. Um, final question. If you had an entrance song for you when you walk into a classroom, mm -hmm. what would it be? So remember when I said how you need to meet your students where they're at? I wouldn't dare play an entrance song walking into a room <laughs> when I'm teaching. <laughs> but what I will say is that in my new passion for downhill skiing, I'm often on my headphones playing Dave Brubeck Take Five. Nice. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for spending the time. This has been terrific. I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks so much for doing this, Tim. I really, really appreciate it. It's great to learn more about my class, our classmates and your dedication just over the years has been wonderful. Well, thank you. In a world where people were isolated by a pandemic, forced to live their lives remotely in an endless parade of Zoom meetings, one Yale College class dared to break the mold. The Yale College class of 1987 is planning what no Yale College class has ever tried before, at least not for a while. An in-person reunion, June 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 5th, 2022, we will be gathering in Pearson College. Be there for engaging discussions, nightly revelry, and way too much New Haven pizza, if there ever could be such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask, what do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. One Yale College class dared to break the mold. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. 
This has been the Y87 Podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Such a thing. We'll wrestle with age-old questions like, maybe I look better in a mask. What do you think? Who or what is a bula? What in the world am I going to do with no kids in the house? These questions and more will be answered at our 35th college reunion. Be there. That's it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. This has been the Y87 podcast, the official podcast of the greatest class that Yale College has ever known. We hope you've enjoyed it. If you have any comments or questions or would like to appear as a guest, please email me at timothy.p.harkness at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.